Good afternoon everyone and welcome along to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we'll be having a conversation with a gentleman who is a lecturer, a writer, commentator, he's also deputy editor of Slugger O'Toole's website and he also has a PhD in North-South relations from the University of Ulster. It gives me great pleasure to welcome along David McCann. Welcome David. Thank you for having me. No problem, glad you could make time in this obviously very busy period with all elections and yeah. prime ministers resigning yeah. and it's been a very busy busy time and uh you know two, two elections in two weeks is uh it p- puts a strain on anyone even <laughs> a political nerd like me <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> david we always kind of start off by asking all our guests to tell us a little bit about their early years their background and what helped your form your political thinking mm-hmm. and what got you interested mm-hmm. in politics well i was born and raised and still live in North Belfast. Oh, okay. um, so I was born in uh, October 1988. Um, so I was kind of uh, caught the tail end of the troubles, really. Yes. Um, it was still a formative thing growing up because, of course, when you were growing up, we, you know, you had, you know, one of early political memory for me is, you know, the ceasefires 1994, then the collapse of those ceasefires. Then obviously going in, I've, I really, really remember Tony Blair being elected in 1997 as Prime Minister, the new Labour sweeping the power, and then of course the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, um, it was the thing everyone talked about. It was one of the few times I ever remember uh, my teachers in school talking about politics. Sorry, uh, what age would you have been at the Good I would, Friday Agreement? I would have been uh, 10 years of age. All right, so I remember my primary school teachers talking about the Good Friday Agreement. So, so you still believe in Santa then? I still believe in Santa then. <laughs> I, well, maybe I actually probably didn't, but I was always cynical. I, I was always cynical and asked questions, you know, how's he getting down the chimney? Um, and, and, by, and by the way, just in case there's any children listening to this, Santa is a real person. <laughs> Santa is very real, as, as, as I've got a little niece, so, so, so Gracie, Santa is real. Um, but I remember, because I remember teachers be, uh, um, talking about the referendum, because of course it was the thing that everyone talked about. Yeah. Um, and I remember my mum and dad talking about it, my grandparents talking it about it. It was palpable. It was palpable. Everyone, yeah. there was 80% turnout in that referendum. Yeah. People forget that. You know, yeah. you know we, we talk about Scotland getting 84% turnout. Funny, we're, we're going to touch on, on people voting in a mm-hmm. further into the podcast, okay. but yeah. Um, so I remember people talking about that. Another symbolic thing that I do remember was Alden McGuinness becoming the mayor of Belfast. Yes. It was the first time ever a nationalist became the mayor of Belfast. And the reason why it was symbolic for the school I went to, I went to St. Tresolusia, that was where Alden McGuinness's children also went to school. I so when see. he became mayor, yes. he came and visited our school and I it was such a yes. big deal yes. that, that a na- first, first time a nationalist had ever come the mayor of Belfast. This is only 1997, people forget that. Like, this wasn't yeah. any age ago. Like, <laughs> it was 1997. Like, and him becoming mayor was such a big deal that an SDLP became became the mayor. And this is when the SDLP were at their heyday. Of course. You know, John Hume was the master yeah. of all survey, the unqualified right. leader of nationalism. Right. Um, and um, uh, the SDLP, of course, went on to, to big things in the 98 Assembly election. But but I remember that, and that really shaped my views. And my school was always a polling station. So um, what happened was I would always be off during elections. And um, my granny used to used to kind of look after us so my mum and dad were out of work my mum's mother always used to look after me and um, I used to be off school and she always used to go around and vote and that was her polling station so she would take me round and 
I always ask lots of questions as a child. I still do ask lots of questions. It's how I learn things. Um, so I'd be walking around and there'd be all these pictures, put the posters up on the up on the lamppost. So you would see all these posters of John Hume. And I'd explain to her, I'd ask her, I'd ask her, who, who, who's that? There'd be the pictures of David Trimble, Ian Paisley all up around the place. And who's that? And then, of course, back then when you went to polling stations, you had the army outside them. Yes, if you forget the army, right, right side polling right. stations of that. So naturally, I'd ask, well, well, why is the army here? You know, so my granny would be very patient and would let me, uh, and she would explain to me who, who was who and what party was which. My granny was, um, my granny was a real SDLP voter at the uh, at the time. Okay. So she always bigged up John Hume and always told me uh, how great she was. Um, my father's side of the family uh, were very much not. They would have been more along the Sinn Féin um, analysis. They would have been more along Sinn Féin's okay. side of it. So I was kind of getting both both perspectives of nationalism there. So so that helped really uh, that helped really kind of shape me in terms of like what was going on around the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of my journey into nationalism and a belief of the United Ireland. Um, it's kind of it's kind of like like most people. I mean, I'm not naive enough to say I came to all these conclusions myself. But you know, my my parents were a big role in that. My my dad taking me down to the GPO and um, telling me all about the the Easter Rising was a big was a big moment for me. And mm-hmm. putting my fingers in the bullet holes and telling me about all the along the pillars and telling me about all the history uh, that was going on then. So that was very formative and. Um, and uh, and very educational. So, so when I was growing up, you couldn't miss politics from mm-hmm. ceasefires coming, ceasefires collapsing, the Good Friday Agreement, the Blair landslides, Bertie Hearn coming to power in the south as well, and Mary McAleese, of course, being elected president of Ireland. 97 was a big deal as well, a northerner making it to the, to but, the arse. But, but you said there you couldn't miss but help get involved or yeah. be interested in politics, but there was a lot of people born in 1988 that, you know, were oblivious and just mm-hmm. went on about their mm-hmm. lives, but you mm-hmm. definitely are not I always was. People. If my mum was here, she'd probably be the better person to, to interview about this time. We can, we can maybe but, do a podcast. But I, I, get, I get her. <laughs> I, I get her there. So uh, so my mum will, 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 will always tell tell people stories about me just watching the news a lot. The news was always on in my house. So no cartoons for you, no, just news? Well, well, I watched cartoons too. I wasn't, I wasn't always that. My, my nerdishness developed gradually over time. Um, but I was always interested in politics. Like, I was always watching Hearts and Minds. I was always always watching um, uh, you know election coverage you know my mum will tell you about me sitting up watching the 97 general election and being able to hold a conversation with you about who Tony Blair was and who <laughs> and who these people were and and you know the referendum as well was a massive moment so you couldn't help but miss politics and and this was a bit more of a more politically engaged time you know turnouts yeah turnouts and elections were much higher then and people I think it probably maybe was because you know, with your parents and, and all around you, politics seemed to make a difference. You know, and yeah. and everything was so critical and so crucial then. You know, so so lots of things were changing, which made it which made it really interesting. So, Thomas, how did you get involved with Slugger or two, and maybe explain what Slugger does and its mm-hmm. objectives for anyone that maybe isn't familiar, which oh. I don't believe there'll be that many. Right okay, now. okay. So how did I get involved with Slugger or two? So around about 2012. I started um, writing uh, for a website called thejournal.ie, um, just writing about northern, they want someone to write about northern politics. Mm-hmm. Journal.ie is a southern based website for anyone who doesn't know it's, um, uh, and they wanted some more northern stuff, so I used to write some articles for them, mm-hmm. and they asked me to come and do that, and then after a while, kind of just was writing away about things, and then Mick said to me, look, Mick got in touch with me and said to me, look David, 
it, would you like to ever write a post for Slugger Hotel? And I was like, kind of going, great, I, I would like to. A few years before this, I'd sent Mick uh, an email asking him, could I write for Slugger Hotel? And he never got back to me, actually. Um, until, you, until you built your own profile? Oh, uh, no, he never got back to me. Oh, no, Mick is hopeless in answering emails. Anyone who emails into Slugger knows that they, tip, they typically get an email back from me or Claire. Mick's hopeless at responding to emails. Um, so, um, so kind of just did that, and then he asked me to come and do some posts. Mm-hmm. And I gradually did that, and then I started sourcing some other writers for him, and I kind of wrote a bit of a, a bit of a critique of the website for him, kind of where I thought it was going wrong, where I thought things could be better. That was brave of you. Well, yeah, so I kind of wrote a wee critique for him, and in fairness to him, he, he took it all on board and said to me, well, look, why don't you come and, and, help, and help me? Do uh, something about do it. Do something about it and come and help me. And 2014, he asked me to do that, and kind of the, the, the rest is history, really. 2014? Uh, 2014. So five years ago. About right? five years ago, um, he asked me to come and do it. And, uh, and yeah, the rest is history, and, and, and how Slugger works is very, it's very simple. If we bring you in as a writer, you get to write about whatever you want to write about in whatever tone you, you wish. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have an editorial line. We don't yeah. whip people to write from a certain perspective. So, Chris. So you don't put restraints on anybody. Not really. No, the, the, the only rules we have are play the ball, not the man, stroke woman, mm-hmm. um, or just as long as you're not libeling someone as well. Yeah. That's another key thing. Yeah. But aside from that, like if you want to write, you know why. I don't know why. Sorry, Jer- yeah, we're going to say Chris. Chris. Oh, sorry, Chris. Chris so, so Chris Donnelly, for example, writes whatever he wants to write about. Yeah. He doesn't get told. We don't say to him, oh, uh, "We want you to write from this perspective." He writes whatever he wants to write about. Claire, Claire Mitchell, anyone else is like that as well. And, and what type of feedback do you get from, from generally speaking, from whoever's writing a piece? From the people who are writing it. No, what kind of feedback do you get? You know, from. The Twitterati or whoever you know, Joe Public. Negative in the main because if <laughs> yeah. you're gonna if you're going to tweet, and this is the thing, and a lot of people have problems with this when they when when people are starting out writing, and they come and write for us, they typically do get a bit disheartened by the feedback that they get because people tend to be negative online. I'm sure, you guys have seen this say uh, yeah. uh, yourselves. Yeah. Um, people do tend to tweet if you put up a podcast with someone. Ten, nine times out of ten, you're going to get a reaction. Why'd you put them up? Why'd you not go for this person? Yeah. Why'd you not go for that? You know. Yeah, yeah so, but but I suppose what we say, wait till you see who we've come in next week. Yeah, well, will, you, will well, you be saying the same negative yeah, stuff? Yeah, well, 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 yeah, the, and and this is the thing, you know, um, we do tend to have that. So so people do tend to get criticised because I always go with this rule of thumb. If you read an article, it's like anyone. You read an article online and you read it and go, God, you know, I really like that article and great, great. You click off it. Really liked it. Mm-hmm. But if you read something online and you really dislike it, yeah. you're far more. You're ten times more likely to comment on that. Correct. You're ten That's times right. more likely to say why you dislike something than rather you like something. So That's I always right. say to people, if your article's getting about four or five thousand reads and. You know, twenty people are saying why it's bad. That's a pretty good batting average. It so, is, um, so, um, so that's the thing. And in terms of the wider objectives of Slugger Hotel, it, it, it tends to be pro politics. We don't take an editorial line, um, and we don't take a line of we're pro one party or anti another yeah. party. So, Mick, for example, will be pretty critical of Sinn Féin. Yeah, okay? he will do. I think I think that maybe comes across slightly okay. He he does he he does. But in fairness to him, like he's never stopped me. He's, he's never vetoed uh, a post from any of our contributors that would be favourable to Sinn Féin. Yeah, well, never, I suppose you have to give him credit for yeah, that. He's yeah, never, he's never once, he probably wouldn't be brave enough to do it, but uh, mm. but he wouldn't be 
he's never once vetoed me, vetoed anyone else um, about that. And I, I wouldn't agree with every critique Mick, Mick, Mick would make of Sinn Féin. Um, but he's never once stopped me from doing that. So, so Slugger doesn't have an editorial line, and that confuses people because most people tend to think that an outlet must have a point of view, a yes. stated point of view. Yeah. Um, and and I suppose, in fairness to Mick, he's wise enough to understand to bring people like you and people that would have different views, <laughs> which, which gives it a good round. He, he's of weird. He's weird. He encouraged. A lot of people say this. I mean, friends of mine who would be active when Shipman said to me, "How can you work with it?" And it's weird because it's it's weird because I've never met someone or worked with someone who encourages dissent. He encourages you to disagree with him. He so that's why when me and him have a Barney on Twitter, it's never that has never once got in the way of our working relationship. We've always been able to work very well together, and he encourages that that dissent. So it's it's always it's always strange. So I get. So, with someone listening to this, I do get why people go, how can you do that? I, I do understand that. But at the same time, though, I, I make the same challenge. I put the same challenge back to someone listening to this, who at the challenge that Mick put to me. If you think we're not covering something and you think we're not doing something, drop us an email. Get how, involved. How, do, get involved. how does anyone get, get in touch They can with get in touch. So, they can email uh, deputy at sluggerotool.com if they want to submit a piece to us. They're always very welcome to do so, and uh, we can give feedback and we can do that. So, thank you, Philip Plug. No <laughs> so. problem at all. You recently wrote a piece, David, about compulsory voting, just like they have in Australia. Yes. And given a recent turnout here in Ireland, is this system worth looking at more in more detail? Yes, absolutely. Would you like to expand um, on that? It is Again, just for anyone that maybe doesn't understand how it goes okay. in Australia. So, so, uh, compulsory, so uh, compulsory voting in Australia, um, how does it work? Basically, if you do not turn up to the polling state, you're not required to vote for a candidate. You can spoil your vote. You, there's a none of the above option. As long as you make as the vote. As long as you make the vote. Yeah. If you do not have a valid reason, you get fined twenty dollars Australian dollars, which is about fourteen pounds uh, in our currency, um, and they get turnouts. In they had a low turnout in this election of eighty four percent, which was yeah, low by Australian standards. It's normally ninety. It's about plus. ninety plus percent. Mm-hmm. So um, they get people out to polls now. Obviously, there are broader ways you can vote. Lots of people post to vote in Australia. They've got a thing called pre poll vote, or you can go up to the polling station like days before the election and vote what about uh, people that's in jail do you know how they handle that one I don't think they can vote Uh, I I don't think they can vote from memory Um, but but so so that's how they do it why am I a fan of compulsory voting because in society I think it's it's important that you come out and you make a statement about this because your vote Yes, it's, it's personal to you, but it's not just about you. you. Your vote has wider ramifications. And a lot of people say, well, it's your right in a democratic society not to vote. But in a democratic society, we're all compelled to do lots of things. Jury duty, you get a certain number of deferrals, but you can't get out of it forever. We use levies to change people's behaviours all the time. The, bag, the plastic bag levies are a way of doing that. You know, it's your right to litter. It's your right not to put something in a bin, I suppose, but we'll still find you if you litter, you know, as, as is in a society. We we compel people to do things all the time, and I think it says more about us as a society that we say, yeah, at an election, we're asking you to take 10 minutes out of your day to come and register either your protest or your vote. And as you're saying about, about turnouts in an election, we had a 45% turnout, which was not fantastic. We had a 53% turnout in local government election, which we all did cartwheels about, hmm. thinking it was great. But, you know, at the same time, though, I think we can do a lot better. And 
and I think that there are a lot of people there who, who I think we could get a verdict from. Um, I suppose what I always say to my friends and family is, if you don't vote, don't complain. Mm. It's as simple as that, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, some people just need a bit of a, a bit of a poke. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, what could a £10 levy do? Well, look at what a 5p levy on a, on a plastic bag has done. 80% reduction in plastic bags. And, and we, we do this to influence behaviours all the time. Yeah. Um, and same thing with smoking. How, how do people bring down the rates of smoking? The government whacks another quid on a pack mm. of cigarettes. You know, th- th- these, are what, these are things that we try and do. Um, so I think it says a lot about us as a society and what we expect in a society because I think, particularly in Northern Ireland, the culture of low expectations, you know, we expect so much less in this society. And I think that, that, um, that compulsory voting, I think, does do away with that. Now, that by itself doesn't solve a problem. I think we need to look at things like voting on weekends. Uh, we need to look at expanding the ways that high people can and, vote through postal votes. asking a couple of different questions instead of going to the polls for just one absolutely. particular uh, Absolutely, issue. and that has to be a none of the above option. We have to expand how people can vote mm-hmm. as well. So obviously we had a problem in the European side with postal votes as well, mm-hmm. You know, people being able to register for postal votes. We need to look at things like that as well. So it's not just the only thing yeah. that we can do. And also people say about, well, if you're fined, you can use those fines to expand polling stations because sure. we've had a cut in the number of polling stations in recent elections um, and we can use it to help fund citizenship education. So like we use the plastic bag levy for the environment fund, we can use that for like a citizenship fund about getting people educated. I, about I, I think there's a lot of merit in at least having a conversation about it and looking in more detail into it yeah, as totally. opposed to just dismissing it. You yeah, know? totally. And I think, look... When a bad turnout in Australia is about 84, 85%, you really do have to ask. And an average turnout in Australia is about 94, 95%. Yeah. They're electing, their, their parliament is representative a, of the a people. proper representation. Yes, it's correct. 90. You cannot say that that parliament doesn't represent the, yeah. the will of the people yeah, when nine out of every, more than nine out of every 10 people are coming yeah. out to vote for. And also, one thing that's great about Australia about on voting day, it's a real tradition. They queue up to vote, and they, they've got a tradition of getting sausage sandwiches But when they're queuing up to vote. So party workers will be there with barbecues Honestly. making sausage sandwiches. That's why that's why the, the, the emoji for Australian Election Day is the sausage sandwich. Ah. So they're sitting there with their sausage sandwiches, and they're queuing up to vote, and it's a big tradition. And it is, um, it's we, a real, it's if we, a. If we don't not only offer people a beer, I think it might work. A beer, it might work, or a bacon sandwich. I'd take like you know, <laughs> yeah, but, but it'd be great. It'd be great queuing up and getting a bacon sandwich um, and stuff like that. But again, things obviously elections in Australia are on Saturdays as well, so those are things yeah, yeah we need yeah, to look yeah. at as well. Okay. So very good. That's a very interesting subject and one that I think we'll come back to during the course of our podcast series. Okay. Tell me this, what's happened to UUP vote, in your opinion? Okay, so what has happened to it uh, over the last 20 or just in the last election? Well, the last election probably is the most obvious thing. Okay, uh, well, a lot of it both, went... Both uh, European Union vote sure. and local elections. Sure. A lot of it went to the Lance Party. Um, I think a good lot of it is staying at home as well. Um... They are suffering from uh, the problem of Alliance are really taking in lots of new voters. What do I mean by new voters? These are people who've turned 18 in the last maybe three to four years and have just come online. They've just come on the system. Alliance are doing a very good job, along with the Greens and people for profit, of taking these people in. The Ulsterians are not doing a very good job of that. So the problem is, if you're more reliant on an older voting base and an older demographic, and I don't mean to be pejorative about this, it is just the facts of life. Those people 
die off eventually and that is what happens um, so their voter base is getting smaller and smaller um, whereas Alliance or, and the Greens and Sinn Féin are replenishing their voter base as new voters are coming online they're keeping replenishing their voting their voter base so uh, that's what that's essentially what is happening to them um, can you see a, um, a stage where there will be elements within the UUP starting to join the alliance or DUP after the last local government election there were a few councillors who defected over to the DUP um, I think you will see some realignment um, around the edges. I don't think you're going to see any major defections. Um, I think what will be really fascinating is Robin Swan. And why do I say that? Because if there is a leadership contest in the Ulster Unionist Party, I would imagine there would be a liberal conservative battle around that. Um, because when Mike Nesbitt stepped down, I always felt that the party missed a trick in that there was an opportunity, particularly with the Assembly being down, for the party to have actually a fundamental debate about its future. Do they go down a liberal route? Do they go down a conservative route? Or do they do the kind of hybrid model that they followed over the past few years? Even though Mike Nesbitt had a reputation as a liberal, Mike Nesbitt actually kind of tilted backwards and forwards. In 2012, he was out in the flag protests. In 2015, he was doing the pact with the DUP. And then in 2016, it was vote column, get Mike. And then 2017, he was transferred to the SDLP. So his leadership was a hybrid of, of, of that. I mean, it was a bit of a, gives you a bit of a headache just thinking about it. Trying uh, to be one thing. Trying to be one people. thing. And this is the problem with the Unionist Party. They're such a broad coalition um, of people. So, yeah. so I think that's what's happening. Alliance are just clearer. They're clearer on Brexit. They're clearer on social issues. They're clearer on just a lot of different things and, and I suppose you can say the same about the DUP they are clear they want to remain within the union they they want to leave the European Union yeah. um, you know they, they, they are anti-LGBT yeah. I mean the, the, the DUP sell it better yeah. in a sense yeah. uh, and the problem is with the Unionists when they try and turn their policy you hear the screech on the brakes the DUP are just better at selling it yeah. the DUP um are also in a lot of respects just better yeah you're right it's just a narrative they've got a better narrative about themselves and, and they and they know what they're about the old students just don't really have that in some respects um in belfast city council which i am down at every month it wasn't uncommon to see the old students group voting different ways on the same issue yeah. <laughs> you'd have to be uh, of their seven councillors three going one way four going the others and that wasn't totally uncommon. Even in a recent interview we did with um, Ulster Union's MLA Doug Beattie on the issue of um, same-sex marriage, LGBT rights, etc., I put it to him that the party has seemed to roll back on their original stance, and he said, no, they haven't. It's just now everyone can vote whatever way they choose. Yeah, it's conscience, yeah. Yeah, a vote of conscience. So, again... From the party point of view, there seems to be no real stand on that issue either, you know. Okay, what's happened to Sinn Féin vote in the recent southern elections, David? Where they went from 150-odd councillors yeah. to more or less half. So a few things have happened there. One, they didn't get their base out for a start, and that causes um, a lot of problems for them. Number two, I think a big, a big problem is... They, from my point of view, Sinn Féin 
secured the result they secured a few days after the 2016 general election. There were the programme for government negotiations and Sinn Féin walked out after two days. So what Sinn Féin basically signalled was, we've got this big mandate, we're going to do nothing with it. In a Hong Doyle, which the last Doyle was, they basically signalled that they weren't going to do very much with it. And the problem was they made themselves irrelevant because the debate ever since then has been Fianna Gael led government proposes X, confidence and supply agreement, Fianna Fáil opposition will do Y. And the problem is that's where the narrative has been. So Sinn Féin have been sidelined from that narrative. So they have struggled in that environment to develop a second album, really. You know, Sinn Féin, I was chatting to a Sinn Féin activist, actually, um, uh, uh, just as the results were coming in, and one thing they said to me was, we're, we're too angry. We're too angry as a party. And actually going back to their last Ardesh, and some of the screaming that some of their TDs and Sanadori and their councillors do, it's like they're consistently angry about things, but anger isn't a policy. Anger isn't a solution to anything. And when the economy is growing at five, six percent, and unemployment now is below five percent inside the the South is now actually technically at full employment. People don't don't see Shin, don't see what Sinn Fein are saying in that context, in that environment. And they haven't developed a second album really. They haven't got anything to say about the growth. And even when Sinn Féin had leadership positions in Dublin City Council, there wasn't a lot of evidence that Sinn Féin were doing anything, they were, that they were doing very much with these leadership positions. And they had the same problem in the last executive up here. Point me to a Sinn Féin policy win in the last term of government up here in the last 10 years, a policy win. You can't say it's exactly the same problem in the South. You can't point me to the things that they did um, with that mandate. And I think the problem is, is that a lot of people are, are reversing that transaction because they look at that even even in, with their European MEPs, you know, Sinn Féin saying that they invented the, invented the backstop, Sinn Féin saying that they did all this and they were doing all this with Jean-Claude Juncker, it just didn't tune in with the narrative in the South because if, if you've been watching RTE over the last two years, it's been Simon Coveney, you've been seeing on Brexit and Leo Varadkar, it hasn't been with all due respect here, and I think she is a hard worker, Martina Anderson or Lynn Boylan or Leah Nereda, like it's not, they're not the people you've been seeing and and it's it's been the Irish government that they can see. I think um, just when you mentioned Leo and Simon there, I think they have definitely brought a new level of professionalism to you know yeah. how they portray themselves in the media. Yeah. Um, they're yeah. definitely slick operators. Uh, uh, and they've no been and they've been good. And the problem for them is that they're in the room. Uh, the problem for Sinn Féin, they're in the room. It is Leo Varadkar. It is Simon Coveney mm-hmm. making those decisions with the European with the European Union, and it is they're they're. You know, they are the people who are influencing this. Um, it is not Sinn Féin with all the best will in the world. The European Parliament has a nominal role in the Brexit negotiation process. The, the negotiation is between the European Commission and the British government, and, and that, that, that is where Sinn Féin... Um, will will this be an easy fix for Sinn Féin to fix? No. What do they have to do? They need to, again, think about how do they adjust themselves in an economy that's going 5 or 6%. They can't just consistently be angry at things. They can't just consistently be opposition to things. You know, this is a minority parliament. Sinn Féin could cut deals with the Fianna Gael government if they wanted to. And they, they with the independents, have the numbers to get things through in the doll. They could do things if they wanted to. And if they want to compromise. A lot of people say, well, it's because they want to go into coalition with, with, with Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil. 
I think that's a nonsense. That's all inside the Beltway stuff. Eamon, uh, Eamon Ryan, before the election, was saying, yeah, we'll do a deal with Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil, you know, before that, and they were rewarded for it. The problem is, too, too many of their voters saw they had voted for Sinn Féin in 2014, and in five years' time, they didn't see enough delivery on that issue. The aspirations that Sinn Féin had of getting into government in the South, yeah. given what happened two weeks ago with the local elections, has that put that in the back burner now? No, I think it puts more reason for them to go in. I think they, if this result holds up, Sinn Féin are set to lose between 10 to 14, 10 to 14 seats. If that result holds up. 10 to 14 doll seats. By sitting on the sidelines. That's by sitting on the sidelines. No deal with anyone. For me, that's all the more reason to go in. Because they need to be relevant. They need to make themselves relevant. They need to think what they want to achieve going into government. They need to think about what they want to do going into government. And I think it's all the more reason to go in. Because the problem is, is that you can sit outside and protest all you want. A lot of their voters, a lot of their voters with a growing economy... Um, I think do want to see things done and they do want to see a bit of delivery. So I think it's all the more reason to go in. Okay. The question of a border poll mm-hmm. has obviously now become mainstream conversation sure. with people um, in coffee shops, football matches, anywhere it can be, um, it's been talked about. Yeah. Recently, um, Shared Ireland spoke with Doug Beatty um, and we asked him what his biggest fears would be in joining a new Ireland, a mm-hmm. united Ireland, whatever. And he quite simply said Sinn Féin would be his biggest problem. Mm-hmm. When I asked him about that, why, he said because Sinn Féin would play a huge role, he thought, in a new Ireland. And he simply does not trust him because of, I suppose, their past and... Yeah. as he would see it from a unionist point of view. But if you look, that RT did an exit poll in Southern Ireland, and 70%, 77% of people said that they would vote for a united Ireland. Sure. So does this not dispel the notion that Sinn Féin own the united Ireland mantra, given their poor result? Um, well, I would argue, yeah, because I've never been a believer that Sinn Féin own the united Ireland question anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that it shows that it it, it, it probably fair to say it wasn't an issue that very many people were voting on in the local election, but um, it that is something I constantly hear that oh yeah a lot of unionists fear because Sinn Féin will be will be a dominant role. I I happen to not believe that even at their peak when you're combining Sinn Féin's vote north and south, I think it was coming to about what 10, 11 percent on an all island basis. Um, I mean, Sinn Féin weren't even the largest council party. Uh, I didn't even, even have the big... I mean, Fianna Fáil had more councillors in the south in 2014 than Sinn Féin had across the island of Ireland. Um, uh, so I think that uh, Sinn Féin wouldn't be. And again, it goes back to, to that narrative. Well, actually, it depends who's in government. Sorry, that, not to say Sinn Féin would be. Um, because ultimately, if a border poll is passed, the negotiation is between the British and Irish governments. That's what happens. So... Uh, it's a yes vote both sides the enabling governments sorry the, the two governments come into play there so it would be at the minute it would be Theresa May Leo Varadkar and they would work out an arrangement obviously other parties would be consulted Sinn Féin would have a consultation role 
being the largest party in the north, the DUP would have to have a role in that, the UUP, and so on and so forth. But they wouldn't have the driving role, if you know what I mean, like you know, because it, it would ultimately be a, have to be a treaty between the two governments, um, and that would be who would decide that. So I think Doug's fears are a little misplaced, um, and I think that 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 puts the challenge to us uh, to to kind of more make that argument that look, you know, this is going to be an agreement between the British government, the Irish government. Obviously, there'll be a role too with the European Union in there too, um, and I think and I think that is a big part of it as well so it's not going to be like you know Robin Swan and Doug wouldn't be walking in and sitting across the table would be Mary Lou and Michelle you know it would be Leo Varadkar Simon Coveney and Theresa May or sorry whoever the new British Prime Minister would be you know it would be that it would be who they'd be negotiating with it would be them who who they would be making a deal with not Champion. If I said to you 50 plus 1 how would you respond? Would you say would you say yes or would you say no? Oh look look I've always said this, if 50 plus 1 is good enough to keep us within the Union, it's good enough to take us out of it, if it's good enough for Brexit, if it's good enough for the Confederate Agreement, it's good enough for this cha- for that change too. Now, uh, so, so how would you respond to Seamus Mallon in his recent interview? I have a lot of respect for Seamus Mallon for everything that he's done throughout his political career, but I do disagree with him on this. Um, I, look, everyone has to vote on the basis of, of equality and... Um, uh, my vote is as good as anyone else's and look if it is you know and don't get me wrong I'll be aiming to win it if it is a let's say it's 50.4% no as much as it will pain me that we got so close and I would be disappointed and heartbroken you, you have to accept it like you know you, you, you'd be disappointed with the result but you accept it and if that if that is good enough to keep us within the union, then 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 look, it's it, you know I would like to think someone else would accept it. Now, if it was the opposite way, now, do I think we should have a 50 plus one mindset? No, we should make this the biggest, broadest possible coalition possible, and we should get out to win every single vote possible. If you can get 54, brilliant. If you can, if if research is telling you you're on 54. With a bit of difficulty and a bit more work, you can get 56. Go for the 56. Go for 50. Try and get as many people in this as possible. The biggest mandate, the, uh, the, the better. Um, but but I, I do disagree with Seamus Mallon on that. And uh, and again, I do think a 50 plus one vote is enough to take uh, Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom. Is the onus now, David, on the Irish government <clears throat> to produce a white paper on a new Ireland? Danny Morrison said in a recent interview he had with Shared Ireland that unionism might have a problem joining an all-Ireland forum set up by the Irish government. So should it be chaired by maybe the EU or somebody kind of as would be perceived as being less biased? They probably have a problem with the EU now too. Um, I think, well, look, to be honest with you, how you get them uh, to engage in that process, I'm not so sure. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult to get any unionist buy-in or engagement this side of a border poll. Why do I say that? Because naturally they're going to be inclined to push push against the notion that it's going to happen anyway. Which is fair enough because at the same time though, if someone asked me, well David, would you engage us about a conversation about how we make the United Kingdom stronger? I'll be honest with you, I'm not really going to engage in that conversation. Yeah, so um, there, might, there might have to be a couple of conversations I think um, instead of just having a single I issue. Yeah, I, I agree. The reason why, again, and a lot of people said to me, why did you take part in that Ireland's Future Conference when there was no unionist 
representation at it. Um, I made the argument that again, it's possible to do two things at once. Yeah. You know, you walk and chew gum at the same time. It's important for nationalists to have internal conversations, and that is important. And again, I really like the fact that after that unionism, there was a civic unionism thing. I, I really like that. I think it's good that people come it together. It didn't get an awful lot of publicity. It didn't get and I'll just bring you back to the first event that Ireland's Future had in the Waterfront Hall yeah. in January of this year. You know, it, it was covered literally by every news outlet oh, I, that I, I remember, see. Yeah. And, and I suppose a lot of the criticism, as you alluded to there, was that there was no unionists on the platform. But their response to that was nationalism needed to have a conversation yeah. with itself yeah. first. Yeah. But the unionist version of that same conference, you're right, it was refreshing to see it happen. But unless you were searching pretty hard, you probably would have passed you by. Yeah. Why do you yeah. think that was? Um, I think there's always been a great, greater degree of distance between civic unionism and the political, political unionism. Whereas within nationalism, it's much there's less clear blue water. They're much more intertwined. If you know, mm-hmm. does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So at the Civic Nationalist Conference, you had Mary Lou Macdonald, Colum Eastwood, Derek Leary, Joe McHugh speaking at it. So Claire Bailey. Claire, oh, Claire, and Claire Bailey as well. Even though I don't think she considers herself part of the nationalist. No, 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 no. But but and then you had other people outside of those entities. Jim, Jim Dornan. Jim Dornan, yeah, and. Uh, very nice to, to speak at it as well but I think that, that there was much more of that around it so that didn't really happen at the Civic Unionist uh, conference you know what Arlene Foster wasn't speaking at it or anything like that so I think that that is a big part of that um, but I think yeah th- there needs to be a multiplicity of conversations um, going on around it they don't always necessarily need to go on in public I'd be gobsmacked if people in the Irish government weren't talking to people within the Unionist community Maybe not necessarily about a border poll, but just maybe about where the future of, of Ireland goes. And I've gone around about way to addressing your question directly. But in terms of what the Irish government should do, yeah, but the Irish government do need to be open to the conversation of a border poll. Why do I say that? Because I'm thinking about, um, you know, the Brexit referendum. You know, the British government did very little to prepare the ground for that EU referendum. David Cameron didn't do any preparation work about what the EU does like you know it's kind of like you know David Cameron had spent 10 years as Conservative leader going oh the EU's bad the EU's bad the EU's bad the EU's bad but I really need you to vote for me and <laughs> they did no preparation work he brought that deal back in February held the vote in the June and there was just no preparation for it so I think that Leo Varadkar if I was advising him about this I would say don't do David Cameron don't do the attitude of no institutional apparatus can prepare for this no institutional apparatus can talk about this you know which is what david cameron ordered david cameron ordered the government departments do not prepare for a for a leave vote you cannot do that you need to prepare for all eventualities you need to look at all eventualities so i i I would definitely encourage the irish government to look at the various different ways in which that this 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 conversation is happening but the various different ways in which that this could come about okay i'm going to ask you one question here with three different sub questions in it so Mm -hmm. uh You'll have your work cut out for you. Going ahead. What's required to prepare for a successful border poll? When should that border poll be? What do nationalists need to do? And how can pro-unity voices bring unionism along? Okay. I'll give you half an hour there. Uh, okay. So, wow, okay. Um, so, how do... So, the first bit of that is... What is required for a what successful is required? border poll? What, and when should it be? What is required? 
may sound a bit, but stability is required. Okay. Stability is required. Um, so does that mean bringing Stormont back up and going first and getting all the institutions Partly going? means that. Yeah, it does partly mean that. It means clearing the Brexit decks, first of all. Um, why do we need to clear Brexit off? Because we need to know, people need to know what they're going to vote for. People need to know what they're what they're looking at. It's hard to to deal with this with the pro unity conversation in the middle of a Brexit mess. It it just it's hard to get first off, it's hard to get that conversation heard above the din of the collateral of everything else that's raining around you. So we need stability, we need that clear air to have that conversation. Also, some of the people who I think may be open to that conversation are still trying to figure out where things are within that Brexit. Uh, issue. I think nationalism does itself down sometimes by only talking to other nationalists who are gun ho for this and want to go. But you have to remember the people who are going to make this a successful victory are going to be people who don't think about this issue a lot, but they do think about, you know, they're trying to figure out where Brexit is and they're trying to figure out where all that happens. They're also a bit perturbed by the lack of government in Stormont. There is no way to a border pool that doesn't run through Stormont. Why do I say that? If you take a look at any. Um, any successful nationalism, nationalist movement, really in the UK um, at the minute, you know, you look at the SNP, they're using the Scottish Parliament very effectively to advance their agenda. They would never have got a referendum without their success in the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I don't think a, a Secretary of State is going to hold a commission a border poll without a Northern Ireland Assembly giving a vote for it, first of all. Um, and I think the next protocol is getting a Northern Ireland Assembly to vote to ask for a border poll, it would be very hard for a Secretary of State to refuse that request. It would be very hard for a Secretary of State, after a Northern Ireland Assembly has voted to ask for one, to uh, to have that. So I think we do need Stormont back up and running. I think we need those departments in which nationalists are in control of to make some preparations for that. So that's the reason why nationalists need to think about what departments they go for when they go back in. Um, you know, some of those economic departments, some of those kind of more... Uh, social departments like infrastructure and things like that as well um, uh, and um, I think that another thing is um, uh, yeah so that's why all roads to a border pole lead through Stormont and then in terms of how do we win it yes how do we win it I think a big thing that we need to do is nationalism needs to have its act together why do I say sorry what do I mean by that I mean that there's a lot of factionalism within nationalism. Too many nationalists, quite frankly, only see nationalism within the within their own party context. Um, and parties need to get better in terms of actually seeing the bigger picture in that respect. So nationalism needs to get their act together. We also need to have a better approach in how we deal with people who don't have a preordained view on the constitution. I have had this problem before as well, where. I have said to people, how can you not have a view on the Constitution? How can you not? How can you be neutral on it? That, that's impossible. A lot of people are just neutral on it. They just don't think about it. And I think that we need to have a better way of actually dealing with those people and having a better approach of, well, okay, you maybe you don't have a view on that and that's okay. What issues are you motivated on? And kind of ta- see if you can link the two things together as well. So it's not just about getting Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom. It's about linking it maybe to an economic debate, to an education debate, to a healthcare debate, to maybe an equality debate, linking yeah. those things together. And it's about, it's about having that as well. And that's how I think you do that. Uh, so I think it's about, yeah, having a core nationalist vote, but then 
but then having a bigger and broader um, approach and also that links back into the stability point if we make a United Ireland seem like a very scary prospect and it's like this massive 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 change is going to come I think a lot of small unionists who will likely vote no will likely feel more destabilized and will likely feel more kind of threatened and the key thing is about making that section of people who are going to vote no feel like if it is a yes win that it's not the end of the world okay we've lost but it's not the end of the world because we know that at least we're going to have some sort of stake in this in this process and that we've got a winning campaign that is going to listen to some of our concerns i suppose from from our point of view in the shared ireland a winning campaign can't be won if you just simply shoehorn 800,000 or a million unionist yeah. people into a new Ireland. Completely. They must have buy-in. Yeah. They must be yeah. consulted. Yeah. Their fears and aspirations and, must be looked And at. we cannot repeat the same mistakes of the Leave campaign. The Leave campaign basically won and then told the 48% to get stuffed. Um, we cannot make the same mistake. We Just because you voted against this, there needs to then be a conversation after it about, okay, so let's say it's 52, 48, we'll go with the Brexit thing. The next protocol for the win for the for the nationalist campaign has to be right. How do we get a decent section of that 48%? How do we listen to that? What concerns did they have? Now, I'm not naive about it. There will be a good chunk of that 48% who will never accede to it. Will never accede to it. But there will be a chunk of that 48% who, even though they voted no, will be like, look, this is this is a democratic will of the people. Let's see where this goes. And I think that's where you pick up those people to kind of say, okay, we're going to listen to you. We're going to, you know, we're going to compromise. You know, it's not going to be the United Ireland that some people think it is. It's yeah. not going to be the United Ireland that we conceive of. And, yeah. you know, you know, nationalists need to be realistic and say, look, it's going to take a lot more than a vague offer of maybe rejoin the Commonwealth to do that. It's going to maybe mean, you know, things like keeping Stormont. It's going to mean things like yeah. maybe changing the flag, maybe changing the anthem, yeah. maybe maybe doing things like that, you but, know. But these are ugly conversations these are that ugly. need to they, happen. They need to happen. And, like, you know, for a lot of people, and look, I've spoken to some people about this, like who will laud Nelson Mandela on the one hand, but ignore what Mandela did after 1994. Like, Mandela, they, they changed the South African yeah. flag. Mandela went to cricket matches went to rugby matches why did he do it because he wanted to reach out to the white minority community uh, you know and the Springboks, who were such a symbolic thing of the apartheid regime you know it would have been so easy for him to turn around and say actually do you know what no i'm not doing that that needs to happen and that conversation about you know yeah. you're not going to be bulldozing windsor park you know you, you need, you're going to need to be reaching out there you're going to need to be you know a lot of things within northern ireland are going to have to be kept and you know what there is going to have to be this distinct society for Northern Ireland and I, I go back to how the Canadians have looked at Quebec you know they, they've offered Quebec distinct society um, and it's the Canadian Federalists the Unionists in Canada who are doing this and they say to separatists oh you want recognition for the French language we'll make it a dual language with with English in the federal government you want um, you want cultural rights recognized yeah no problem go on belt away go ahead this is how they deal with sovereignty they basically say you want this Belt away, belt away. You go on ahead and do this. Oh, the, the Canadian anthem in French, belt away. Yeah, of course, we'll do all that for you. You know, you, know, you do all this. This is how they do it, and the Canadian sovereignty movement's on its arse at the minute because they can't get traction. 
they can't get traction because conservative prime ministers and liberal prime ministers in Canada basically just say, you want uh, a, 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 the last conservative prime minister in Canada, Stephen Harper, the Bloc Québécois, the separatist party, proposed a motion in the Canadian Parliament saying, we want recognition of Quebec as a nation. And he stood up and said, do we recognize uh, Quebec as a nation? Uh, absolutely. But do we recognize it within a strong and, a strong and united Canada? So they amended the motion uh, to put strong and united Canada in it. Yes, we do. And they all stood up and voted for it. So they, they, they cut the legs out from sovereignists from underneath them. And if unionists here can learn a lot from that, um, but that's how we bring the country together. That's how we bring this country together in a partnership. And, and, and it takes compromise. On it takes all. compromise. It takes basically mm-hmm. a line, basically un- and, and leadership. It takes leadership, and it will mean that unionism will have to have some protections and will probably have to keep storming. But you know what? As long as as I keep saying this to people, look, you don't want to be a nationalist state Capri smog. No. Where it's not pure enough, and if it's not pure enough, we're going to scupper the whole thing together. See, for me, the bottom line is the key thing. And this is what a lot of Quebec Canadian federalists always say. Is the principle maintained? Is Quebec still part of the Canadian Federation? Yes, it is. Have we left the political and economic bloc of the United Kingdom? That's what we need to do. Is the principle maintained? Mm-hmm. And people need to keep their eye on the prize. And that will rec- that will have to be... If, if we have the guarantee to distinct society for Northern <laughs> Ireland... That's no big deal because it's a statement of reality. Northern Ireland is a distinct society within uh, on the island of Ireland. There's nothing wrong in saying it. We all know that. Northern nationalists will regularly say that they're different from southern nationalists. Mm-hmm. That's okay. So that's just it. Let's just state the reality. That's just it. Okay. Okay. Very good. Thanks for that. Okay. I've got one thing before uh, uh, we let you go. Um, I want to ask you a question. Um, You're going to turn the tables on I'm going to turn you? the tables on you. It's um, the first time, isn't uh, it? Uh, I'm going to turn the tables for Maybe you. Maybe I should hit the pause. So, <laughs> so, oh, no, no, I won't be here on you. Um, uh, a lot of people, obviously when we've, when we've seen you come up on, on Twitter, a lot of people have asked, um, uh, who is Sherrod Ireland? This is actually nice to put a to put a, a face uh, to it. So who are you and uh, and where did you just come about and what makes you run around doing doing podcasts with uh, with people? My God, all of a sudden I have, I have felt nerve for the first <laughs> time here now. I've interviewed quite a few people. Um, okay, David, fair enough. Um, I suppose Shared Ireland is run by a group of people from different backgrounds. We are from all across Ireland, would you believe it? And we actually have a few members in England. We believe in a new Ireland, but that Ireland must be a shared Ireland, an Ireland that works for all its people. Everyone's rights must be protected, regardless of their religious beliefs or their political backgrounds. I suppose Ireland is a very, or has a very diverse population and is a multicultural society. We need to break free, I suppose, from the shackles of our past. Mm-hmm. Um, through our a conversation with Sirius, Shared Ireland aims to, I suppose, maybe kickstart this conversation in our own small way. Um, we are bringing voices from all sections of society and political parties to the people via our podcast series. It's important that people are given a voice, and I suppose, unlike TV or radio interviews where guests can be interrupted and it's all about getting a soundbite. Um, they need to tell their story, they need to give their position on matters 
so everyone can understand their fears and concerns, I suppose just like the conversation we've had here today. And while we certainly won't agree on everything, it's important that we all be adults and listen and respect each other's views and try to work together. And I suppose compromise is a word that needs to be reintroduced into society. A shared Ireland can only be achieved by, I suppose, a willingness to work and try to understand each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've said enough, or okay. have you any more questions for me? Okay. No, it's okay. You, no, yeah, that's a very comprehensive answer. Um, well, I didn't put much thought into it, but... Um, I don't. I don't like the. I don't like this, Craig. I should maybe have a better understanding now of um, <laughs> what it's like to ask people questions. So, anyway, back to you. On a more light-hearted note, who do you admire? It can be in a sporting world. It can be politics or. Well, my political someone who, who I have great admiration for him would be top of my list would be Sean Lamas, oh. former Taoiseach Sean Lamas. Yes. So okay. he would be my. He would be someone who I would really look to. And, and why? Well, because. It's very. He's one of the few people who actually not only helped Ireland get. I'm sorry, I'll get trolled for this now. Sorry, Southern Ireland uh, get uh, its independence, but also showed showed them how to use it. He not only helped get get it, but then he helped improve the economy. He helped use uh, self government to um, improve relations on the island. He used it for great social progress as well. Massive house building program. Created things like Erlingus. Helped create RTE as well. Um, Telefisharan as it was then and also charted Ireland's course going into the European economic community as it was then in the early 1960s so for someone you wouldn't have thought someone who fought in the East Horizon would one day be championing you know meeting Terence O'Neill and, and literally looking at a burgeoning economic body yeah. and saying yeah this is Ireland's future pooling its sovereignty with someone else so the fact that he was able to do all that and just and the benefits that that, that we see today I mean Sean Lamass's fingertips are all over uh, modern Ireland and um, uh, he is someone who uh, even even though he was a Fianna Fowler uh, Gar Fitzgerald, John Bruton and Leo Varadkar all when they made their confirmation speeches in the Dallas Taoiseach all cited Lamas as their inspiration Okay, and he so for when you're political when the, op when the opposing political party um, does it and even though Lamas fought in the Civil War himself on the anti-treaty side to bridge yeah. to bridge those gaps I think, it speaks volumes. I think it speaks volumes mm -hmm. of just the, the leader that he was and uh, and again someone who um, who again never got hung up on old dogma old ideas um, was was willing to, to modernise um, uh, and as well and was actually the first Republican leader to actually propose a federal uh, arrangement in 1962. He came out with the first T-shirt to actually publicly state a federal solution uh, for reunification as well. So again, he was he was even ahead of John Hume uh, in terms of that respect. So very good, very good. Well, David, we are 55 minutes into this podcast, so I apologise for taking up so much You're of your okay. time. Thank you for listening. But before we end, we always ask everyone the same question and. Um, I suppose maybe you've given away one of your answers already here by your last time. But if you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Okay, I would invite Muhammad Ali because he would... I love that... If I'm ever out in a bar, I love people who are quick-witted, who can answer back, they're yeah. very witty. I like people who make me laugh. Uh -huh. And again... Um, very witty, very quick-witted. Uh, so Muhammad Ali would be there. Okay. Uh, I would also invite, uh, just to mix it up a wee bit, uh, Dennis Skinner. 
Um, mm-hmm. I met Dennis Skinner. I had the, he's, his politics are not mine, but I had the privilege of meeting him on the in the House of Commons two years ago. And my goodness, he is just quick-witted. Again, you've probably seen a common theme here. Very quick-witted <laughs> and very much um, and very much um, uh, out there as well. And I would also then invite. I'm trying to think here. Who else would I invite to dinner? Um, in terms of bringing it together. You, you wouldn't like to bring a female along, no? I would. I'm trying to think about that. I'd probably invite Nicola Sturgeon, again, another quick-witted person, someone who, again, bring a bit of politics uh, to the rim. Her and Dennis Skitter going at each other would be very good. So Nicola Sturgeon, I think, would be fantastic. She also seems like she'd be good crack as well. At dinner table. Three interesting people, I must say. Well, David, thank you very much for um, affording us so much of your time today. It's okay. Um, you've been very honest and open, and I think you said quite a bit there that will get people thinking, especially around the whole voting thing and the Australian example, and you give different examples there. So um, thanks a lot for listening, folks, and if you like our podcast, we retweet will be much appreciated. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.